Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good afternoon. This is Daniel Paris, the host of the New Books and Finance channel of the New Books Network. I'm here today with Stuart Kells and Ian Gow, authors of the new book, The Big Four, The Curious Past and Perilous Future of the Global Accounting Monopoly. Good afternoon, Ian and Stuart. Good day, Dan. How are you going? Good afternoon. Thank you, gentlemen, for, for joining me today. I'm really delighted to have this opportunity to present to our readers and uh, uh, podcast downloaders this, what I consider really important, uh, but uh, uh, underviewed or under understood, uh, insufficiently understood issue of, of accounting and the history of accounting. Your book is uh, about the big four accounting firms that now everyone knows about, but uh, it really tells the history of how these firms came about and how the history of accounting has come about. And as a a historian, I think that's uh, exceptionally important uh, because a lot of people in finance, the historians understand that everything has a history and evolves, but uh, people who invest and people who are in finance, unfortunately, assume that there's just one set of rules, eternal and Law, uh, uh, created in the distant past and always correct. And that's uh, just not correct in finance and certainly not correct in uh, in accounting. Uh, it has a history. You've done a nice job of characterizing that. Uh, can you can you, you know, provide an overview uh, as to uh, where modern accounting uh, principles came from and how they're reflected in the history of the big the big four firms that we have today? Would you like me to have, have a go at that? Ian or Stuart, whichever one you want to go first, you're more than welcome. <laughs> you go, Stuart. Dan, we, we trace the the origins of accounting right back to the very beginning. Um, so, um, you know, in ancient times and in the Middle Ages, and then you see the, the, the beginnings of the emergence of modern accounting in the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance, um, people like Pacioli and others writing about, about um, pardon me, writing about double entry, bookkeeping, uh, and those concepts spreading, particularly throughout Europe. 
Um, and you have in parallel with that the the emergence of the idea of auditing um, and having a separate set of eyes look over financial accounts. And then I guess the modern concept of what an accounting professional and an audit professional looks like really began in the middle of the 19th century uh, in, in Great Britain. Um, and in the very early days, the boundaries of the profession were, were pretty fuzzy. There was all sorts of things all lumped together. Uh, someone who put out a, a, a shingle saying that they were a, an accountant might also be an estate agent and a, a law bill clerk and a, an auctioneer and a liquidator uh, and all sorts of things like that. Um, and over time, the professions worked very hard, including particularly through professional bodies, but also engaging with governments to solidify and, and strengthen the boundaries of the profession and to define the role of accounting and auditing in a very particular way. Um, so those, those steps were periodically informed by crises. Uh, so after, for example, the, the 1929 stock market crash and during the, the Depression, there were a lot of um, new pieces of legislation that, that defined uh, the way that stock markets worked and the way that companies reported and, and accountants were right in the middle of that. Um, and so it became a, a normal thing for, for a listed company to have its accounts audited in a particular way. And um, the, what we see as the modern service lines of a, of a typical big accounting firm were really defined in that period. You know, what I think is interesting is that uh, accounting, and certainly for the, the big four, is a high-profile profession now. But as you highlight, as it came up, uh, uh, these clerks, these accountants, the auditors really were viewed as second-class business citizens. <laughs> and it took it took a number of crises and, uh, you know, failures and railroad failures in, in England and so forth for uh, societies, you say, to come around uh, in the time of the Depression in the early 20th century to take this serious and view it as something other than a nuisance or a, a liquidation, uh, someone assisting in a liquidation. Yeah, that's a really good point about the prestige of accountancy and auditing. If you go back to the, say, the, the 16th and 17th centuries, doctors and lawyers had minimal prestige. They were treated as quacks and, and con artists. Uh, and it wasn't until, say, the 18th and the 19th centuries that they became much more respectable and, and very powerful professions, and obviously they are today. Accountants have always looked across over the fence and said, well, we would like that kind of status and that kind of respect. Um, and a lot of what they've done professionally is about doing that. Uh, I'd have to say they've only been partially successful. Well, you know, the, the periodic crises don't hurt, uh, don't help, uh, mm. because, uh, you know, some of the finest corporations uh, had their their books audited the prior year and then the, and everything was fine. And then the next year there turns out there were all sorts of problems. Uh, we'll get that to that in a moment. One thing on the history front, if I can, though, and it's it's less uh, in your book than than something I think it's very important, which is not only is the history of accounting and auditing described in your book and very important to people know that there is a history, it, it, it evolved, but also the accounting standards themselves, mm. the choices that we make, the and this is not a, a topic of your book, but it's a topic of real real finance, you know, the amortization of goodwill, the, the uh, expensing of stock uh, expense, uh, depreciation schedules, you know, your <laughs> beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Well, 
well, you know, <laughs> so is depreciation. <laughs> and somebody, somebody making a decision as to how, you know, what a depreciation schedule has, whether it's in the 19th century for a railroad or the early 21st century for a service company, is an enormously important issue. And I think people don't think about that enough. I, I just, again, it's not the main line in your book, but I just think it's worth highlighting if you could comment on it, that there is a great deal of subjectivity and history here in the accounting itself, not just the people doing it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think the idea of uh, standards is a relatively recent thing. I think, you know, in the United States until you know 1973, you essentially had the accounting profession itself sort of deciding what standards were applicable. You know, uh, the Australian, the American American Institute of CPAs basically was sort of running the accounting standards setting process. Um, since 1973, formally, it's been the Federal Accounting Standards Board, the FASB that's been running the standards setting process. Um, but throughout all, all the time since 1973, you had uh, people from the big four, you know, being part of the standard setting uh, body itself, either as as uh, staff, uh, often being former employees of the the big four, uh, board members often coming from the big four, or just the you know the outsized influence that the big four have on the standard setting process. And so, um, even though it's not explicit in our book, I think it's sort of it's hard to separate the big four from the standard setting process. Our book doesn't speak to uh, the you know the import the importance of standards and how they're set, nor the content of standards to a, to a large degree. Um, but anything you say about about the importance of standards and the you know the significance of choosing one way of doing things versus another, uh, the big four are certainly lurking there in the background. I think one of the things you're touching on there is really the importance of of accounting and the impact. And yeah, we we engage with standards sort of a bit laterally by talking about it. First of all, in terms of how it helps solidify the profession and define the role of account, accountants and auditors um, as, as a partly like a, a protective mm -hmm. thing for them. So you have things like the expectations gap about what a, a, an audit will actually achieve. Um, but also, um, yeah, the, the early work of, of accountants and auditors in using some of these concepts was very, very important. And there's a certain beauty and, and, and elegance in the kinds of uh, forensic audits and reviews they were doing in the early days and, and discovering frauds and other things that had big impacts on profitability. So there was that early railway fraud, I think you touched on it a little bit, where um, uh, one of the company secretaries was issuing share certificates at, to himself and it took a very uh, careful investigation to discover this. Um, so those sorts of things um, showed how a, a well-applied accounting and auditing can drastically affect profitability and the performance of, of companies. But looking sort of to today, there's all, there's all sorts of interesting forces that have happened that have changed the way that auditing and accounting works. And so in one sense, accounting and auditing are important because they affect profitability. But also when accounting and auditing fail or when people apply the wrong level of expectation of what kind of assurance they can get from these things, then that also creates... Um, negative um, consequences in terms of things like shareholders' knowledge or directors' knowledge of how companies are actually performing. So these these things are implicated in all sorts of ways, not just in terms of performance, but in terms of people's expectations and, and false expectations sometimes around company performance. 
let's let's go back and make that explicit because it's an important part of your book, and you've now mentioned it several times. The expectations gap for the readers is that, uh, unfortunately, uh, audited records are misinterpreted by many readers to mean that everything is fine, and uh, whereas in fact auditors' records generally are making narrower narrower explicit claims. Yes, but the people who are reading them are uh, assuming broader assurance than in fact the, what the product is designed to deliver let's let's back up and and if you guys i've said it but maybe you can say it explicitly uh in, in your words because i think that's really important and it's uh you know it, it affects everyone in life when you kind of get a guarantee of what you're expecting uh whether you're buying a car going to a doctor getting a degree at a university there is this risk of an expectations gap and also in this case in your book the expectations gap is historical the the gap has changed over time as the industry has changed. Yeah, so that, that question of a guarantee, I'll, I'll quickly go and then hand, hand back. There's a, the question of guarantee is critical. Is it a guarantee or not? So we engage with two aspects, particularly of the expectation gap. When you receive a, a, a ticked off audit report, a signed off audit report, does that mean that you can expect the company will continue to exist profitably into the future? And does it mean that there's no major fraud? Now, those two questions, someone looking outside from outside the profession, from outside accounting and auditing might say, yeah, I think it's reasonable to say if I've got a, an audit report that says everything's okay, that means the company's going to be a, a viable you know, going concern for, for the foreseeable future and that there's no major fraud. But those two particular questions have been very, very fraught. Um, and in a lot of ways, the profession has tried to resist um, people interpreting an, an audit report as saying there's no fraud and that the company can be a going concern. Is that a fair way to think about it, Ian? Yeah, I, th I think so. I think, and I think we, we sort of take uh, different sort of views on each of those issues. So I think with regard to the idea, is this business going to stay in business for the foreseeable future? I mean, I think that's something that's very important for the accounting process. So if you look at what's on a balance sheet, a lot of what's, you know, the value of brands, the value of, you know, goodwill and so forth, they kind of assume that the company is going to continue to exist. Uh, so it is an important assumption that accountants are making and preparing the accounts. But the reality is that, uh, accountants aren't necessarily experts in sort of forecasting what's going to happen to the business in the future. That's sort of not their their area of expertise. And so I think there's sort of a reasonableness to the expectation gap in that particular area. Where I think we've seen more issues over time is sort of this idea that accountants have often said, listen, we're not in the business of detecting fraud. We're just assuming everyone's doing everything okay. Uh, we're going to report on that basis. And I, I think we're seeing a time and time again that that's sort of not a, not a reasonable assumption. I mean, essentially, if you look at the auditors are sort of expected to do and what they do do, they're doing a lot of things like checking, you know, does this cash actually exist? Do these receivables, is, is the counterparty actually going to pay us? Those kinds of things. Do we have a lawful claim? And I think that's the area where the, the expectation cap is sort of, you know, what auditors would like um, expectations to be and what um, the investors would like expectations to be. Shareholders. Shareholders. <laughs> are, are, are there a million bricks in the yard or are there less than a million bricks in the yard? Yeah. Tell that story. Yeah, exactly, and, and that's that's a classic story. I think that was uh, Arthur Anderson in the early days, where um, yeah, it's one of, one of the fables that people share about the role of auditors, where the, the, you're auditing a brick company, and uh, there's a there's, there's this sort of ongoing uh, difference between the stated number of bricks and the actual number of bricks, uh, and unfortunately, sometimes uh, auditing involves counting bricks, and it turns out that the you know the manager <laughs> of the site is you know trucking bricks out every night. 
and those kinds of things. So this question of fraud is, is very interesting and it's at the centre of a lot of recent audit uh, litigation. Um, sometimes auditors say, well, we can't be expected to find well-hidden fraud or fraud that involves the CFO or the CEO. And it's like, well, I think Ian and I argue that that's the kind of fraud detection we're really talking about because incompetent fraud is, is one thing, but we're actually interested in auditors being paid to discover difficult to find fraud. And the way they've done that in the past is by making a significant investment in understanding the business and in understanding uh, particular uh, industries and the kind of issues that, that are associated, for example, with the railways uh, that we talked about before. Whereas now there's, there's a lot of incentives for people to, to invest less in specific topical knowledge. But I think that's, and that's all, all, all for the shame because it, in a manufacturing age, counting bricks is actually a fairly straightforward way to check a real asset. We are now in the age mm. of uh, non-brick businesses. Um, I was just recently reviewing how yeah. Autonomy's case, uh, this is a Hewlett Packard uh, acquisition autonomy in the, in the UK, uh, you know, went south really quickly. These are service companies, uh, Enron, parts of the GE business. These are these are all service companies or parts of businesses that are service companies where you actually it's really really hard to count the bricks uh, because there aren't any. It's mm -hmm. a uh, you know a modern service economy and judging it and providing assurances I think a lot harder. And as you say, without industry knowledge, is can be really really hard. I'll just give you quick, two quick examples from the field of banking. So the colonial TBW case, which was one of the biggest ever audit disasters, um, they had assets on their books. Some of the assets didn't exist at all. Some of the assets were worthless, even though they were um, accounted for as being quite valuable, and some of the assets were owned by other people. <laughs> so these are the problems that, that can happen. Um, and there's a very, very good point being raised recently about the audit technology and this idea of sending out audit teams to understand the business. Imagine what it would be like to audit Goldman Sachs. So yeah, what would you need to be able to do? Yeah. And, and the answer is you probably never really could. Yeah, yeah, which should be taken into account by investors but is not. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where that's sort of the you know can can auditors provide a guarantee that everything there's no fraud in this business that no one sort of misrepresented anything? I think the auditors legitimately claim we can't we simply can't do that. I mean, that's that's impossible to do. In the same way, no doctor can cure any disease or uh, no lawyer can win every case. Um, but I think the the idea is you know there is some expectation that you know reasonable steps have been taken uh, to detect any fraud to make sure that the financial statements are not misstated, and that's sort of where that's where that expectation gap is sort of most acute i mean another good example i think is sort of a case where there were no auditors was actually the case of theranos so i think that's a very interesting mm -hmm. case um and that's that's one where investors clearly didn't appreciate so it, it, i mean in some ways it's easy for us to say you know there are a lot of audit failures but um this was a case where the auditors weren't even involved and perhaps if they had been we would have seen a different outcome because they were claiming to have something like a hundred million dollars of revenue when they had more like a hundred. And they, they were not a public corporation, and therefore they did not. Uh, they they simply didn't file results that required an auditor. Right, right, yeah. I mean, though, at some level, they, they had big ticket investors. You know, investors investing hundreds of millions of dollars. It probably wouldn't have been, you know. <laughs> too difficult to say listen i'm investing we're, we're investing you know 700 million dollars with you in aggregate or something like that uh how about we get an auditor in to just actually check things <laughs> that would have been that would save there's another, another example in 
Another example in that flavour is uh, Bernie Madoff, um, and this is probably a good story for the Big Four. He made sure that the Big Four didn't come very close to what he was doing. I think, from memory, he was his, his uh, auditor was um, his brother-in-law or, or a, a very small-scale operator. Um, and and you'd, you'd like to think that if if a, if a professional firm had got close, then um, things would have been very different. Uh, unfortunately, there's there's hope that that would be the case, but there's unfortunately also plenty of evidence that the the larger firms uh, miss. <laughs> Uh, miss miss these things uh, as well. Let's speak about those larger firms. So, I mean, the, the title of the book is the Big Four. It everyone knows, you know, the the names, you know, Price Waterhouse Coopers, Deloitte, Ernst and Young, KPMG. But you actually provide the histories behind them, and boy, are they interesting characters. As you gay as you point out, they start in the middle of the 19th century in England with the railroads and the Industrial Revolution in England, but uh, spread out. And uh, it's uh, you know, it's it's about as uh, you know, we in business often don't get very dramatic, but the <laughs> the history of these uh, houses and their their leaders is is uh, you know charming and important in its way. And uh, we'll get to the consequences of only having four, but how did we get to four? That that um, issue of the kind of the culture or background of these firms, I know Dan, you're interested in that intersection between economics and the humanities. The, the, these um, firms forward a very beige sort of image and a very safe, bland, you know, generic, you know, we're safe hands, we're auditors. But as you as you would know, and as everyone would probably expect when you think about it, the actual histories are much messier and more colourful and more diverse than the websites would indicate. And so some of these founding accountants like Samuel Price and Edwin Waterhouse and Nicholas Waterhouse were pretty, um, you know, eccentric and unusual and, and, and interesting people. Um, so we've tried to, to capture a bit of that, the anthropology of, of the early days and the stories behind the brands. So, so um, you know, the, 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 we see Deloitte uh, as, as a very sort of, um, you know, uh, corporate brand, but behind that was a, was a real person and, and with real partners and, and all sorts of interesting cultural dynamics behind that. And, you know, it, it's, it's um, a story that hasn't really been told very much before. The consolidation, you know, one, uh, it, it becomes a problem at the end of the book when you're dealing with the current state of the industry. Uh, but that how it got to four, plus there are, you know, some mid-tier firms, but really how it got to four, I think, is an important story uh, because it uh, it uh, forecasts or, or, or presages the fact that, listen, when you only have four, it's kind of a pro it's an oligopoly and uh, there, there's not much differentiation, even if they had very different histories. You know, is it just because it's an, as a large scalable service, it becomes naturally an oligopoly? Uh, you know, what is your view as to why there, why it is the big four as opposed to a different structure? You know, attorney, legal firms, other professional service firms are nowhere near as concentrated. Uh, legal firms are not. Uh, they have a hard time doing that. Uh, and uh, I, it's it's kind of curious that that uh, to me at least, and I think to many readers, why it had bec has become so concentrated. Maybe Ian, can yeah. I just talk quickly about a cultural thing there, and then hand over to the more yeah. recent thing? Um, one of the tensions in this industry, which we highlight, is that uh, difference between traditional auditing is very kind of you know safe, um, almost uncommercial almost like the old style banking versus this high octane ultra commercial um dynamic you know multi-service lines that transition happened in the 70s and 80s and and that's really when the mergers really took off 
particularly in the 80s. And so you've had this really interesting cultural change, partly affected by investment banking and a few other sectors, where accountants have stopped being the kind of the grey and the beige and really tried to be much more commercial. And that sowed the seeds for a lot of today's issues. And Ian, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's an interesting question. I mean, the, the first thing to sort of note is sort of the process by which they became the big four. I mean, I think they were gradually consolidating over time. I think by the the, the last time there was sort of a book with a similar title to ours, it was sort of the, the late 1980s and it was the big eight. So you, you there was a process by which they sort of became the big eight. And I think that process was sort of one of, you know, uh, there's a lot of process involved. There's a lot of training. There's a lot of things that um, if you do it well, you can do it at scale and i think that sort of sort of got to the got got you to the to the late 1980s um so going from going from there to the big four well there's there's sort of a couple of interesting things i think by the 1990s they were the big six um and in, in some ways it's not entirely clear why it was such a good idea to go from a certainly not from a, a client's perspective to go from from six to, to to five uh even um but that was sort of something that you know the the firms pushed very hard to sort of uh, I, I guess uh so take advantage of the scale and and one one fears perhaps a little bit the market power aspect of things, um, but that it was basically by, by about two thousand two thousand and one you had the big the big five, um, and then we went from the big five to the big four. Of course, when Arthur Anderson went under, mm. sort of in the wake of um, Enron and uh, WorldCom scandals, basically took Arthur Anderson out. Um, and I think there's a very real recognition today that four is the absolute minimum you can have um, for various reasons. Uh, one 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 issue is just the fact that you you can't have the same firm. A lot of firms that would feel uncomfortable if they're ordering me. I, I don't want to have them auditing someone else in my industry. So there's sort of that issue to some extent, which is just inevitable at some level. Um, then there's sort of increasingly this issue of the fact that uh, in a lot of jurisdictions, if I'm providing audit services to you, uh, sorry, if I'm providing audit services to you, I can't sell consulting business. And, you know, the um, the amount of consulting business that the, uh, the or the advisory business, as, as the big four like to call it, that these firms do is actually – out rapidly outpacing the growth of their audit business and is is now becoming more and more the majority of their business. I mean, I think that, that there's a little bit of a mystery in some ways to the to how they became the four, but I think there's incredible recognition nowadays that we simply can't go below that because you know these the the importance of these firms to sort of the functioning of global capitalism is very very high, very important. Um, and things just become untenable once you have, say, three three firms. It's just not enough to go around to to resolve all the conflicts, to have you know different people on different sides, all those kinds of things. Um, and so, it, so even it's that take, <laughs> yep, sorry, that sorry. takes you into very. Yeah. So yeah. that and that basic. Okay. I mean, you've seen you've seen that in their recent. So this is part of the issue we're seeing in the last uh, fifteen years. Uh, so KPMG had sort of what we call an extinction level event in two thousand and seven, um, and other firms have had uh, two thousand five. Sorry. Um, so around around sort of re- in recent years, you've sort of seen basically the regulators saying, "Oh my gosh, if one of these firms go under, you know, we're kind of toast in terms of uh, managing that what these guys do on a global basis." Yeah, so that takes you into that really interesting too big to fail sort of territory um, where regulators say, well, we don't want to take active 
you know, punitive or whatever um, inter intervention actions. Um, and so what sort of incentives does that create for the big four? Well, it creates a really strong incentive for them to get bigger and to take risks because as soon as you're insured, um, then the risk balance changes. And so you, you have this sort of cycle. But in a very different sense, uh, that, that plays out in the big four compared to, say, the banking system. So um, the, these these guys are ubiquitous. They're, they're everywhere. They're global. Uh, they have a very, very strong market position. So, you know, 497 of the top 500 companies in the US are audited by one of the firms, those kinds of things. But they're actually quite different. Uh, the way they're wired into the economic system is quite different to banks and to other enterprises. They're relatively thinly capitalised. Most of their service lines are quite substitutable. And uh, we'll probably talk about this in a little while. But um, you see all sorts of new technologies coming into their major service lines and potentially disrupting them. So on the one hand, um, they've, they've got this sort of too big to fail type character, but actually they're, they're not too big to fail and they could fail without too many disastrous consequences, provided there were alternatives in place. And there's this conversation around their monopoly power and, and a lot of concerns about that. But at a fundamental level, they are operating in competitive markets. Uh, the competition is disruptive and different, but it's still competition. Well, let, let's you you kind of are getting to let's call it the back half of the interview, which is the current the current situation and the shortcomings that we're facing. This is where the book shifts somewhat from history to uh, uh, you know what I think a lot of readers will want to know. Hey, what's the situation currently, and how can it be made better? Because we do have an oligopoly. Uh, the services, the advisory business. I you know you emphasize that a great deal that the advisory business has outstripped the audit business, and I I think most investors don't know that, even though in at least in U.S annual reports, uh, it's either in the proxy statement or in the annual report, you do have to uh, indicate how much more uh, you pay the uh, auditor for non-audit services. So, but not too many investors read the uh, the proxies. Uh, and, you know, we have a, a bit of a mess now. Uh, it's an oligopoly. It's, uh, there are conflicts of interest. There's the old expectations gap, which existed you know, in different forms two centuries ago, but still exists now. And uh, this is where you guys come to kind of the the meet where you're saying, here's a, you know, here's a series. The situation is what it is. Here are the major shortcomings. And here's where we think the, the industry, you know, ought to go because this is a problem and it, it's not a very stable uh, system right now. So let's, let's head in that direction. Do you want to, you've sort of already mentioned, touched upon them, but do you want to kind of summarize what you think the biggest issues with the, the current structure are and, and where you, you think it ought to be heading? Well, just, just just first an observation there. I mean, you mentioned that you know, if I, if I have Deloitte, if I'm a large firm, I have Deloitte as my auditor. I have to disclose information about how much other business I'm doing with Deloitte. You know, how much non-audit business I'm doing with them. Uh, but an interesting thing that isn't there is, um, you know, if if I were to switch auditors to say PwC. I, I don't as investor get to see how much advisory business PwC is doing with the firm because they're not the auditor. And often and often often what you're seeing, and this is sort of where there's some conflict, and this is sort of getting to your to your question in some sense, often the conflict is, well, if PwC is doing a lot of non-audit business with a client, they often don't want to do the audit. Um, so your effective choice, your effective choice may be a lot less than you know three other firms might potentially bid for this audit, just because the non-audit business is so big. And I, I think that sort of that's 
the seed of um, or part of the seed of uh, the sort of the troubles we're going to see in the future, I think, is because uh, Stuart sort of alluded to the idea that, and I think this is correct, outside the audit business and maybe tax to some degree, um, there's a lot of substitutability uh, with these businesses. You know, if I'm going to buy advisory services, there's going to be a million and one businesses that can do advisory. Advisory isn't really a scale business in a lot of ways. You know, there are parts of the scale, but even if it is a scale business, you know, there's, um, you know, McKinsey's and BCG's and even the investment banks who will sort of help me out on a lot of those issues. There's a lot of substitutability in the advisory business, um, but the audit business is sort of the one where, you know, their role is so critical, but it's sort of getting lost in sort of the the the, the sort of the growth of the business elsewhere, and that's and that's where I think there's going to be real conflicts going forward. Is just at, at some point you fear at some point there's going to be this uh, uh, the possibility that the the audit business is almost going to become unimportant to these firms, even though their audit business is very important to the global. Economy. Wouldn't it be a, wouldn't it be a better thing if 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 the audit business gets spun off as a small fractured professional service organization and the big four become what they are which are mini mckinsey's as well as mini technology consulting companies i mean you could come full circle and go back to the middle of the 19th century and this is why i love being a historian in the capital markets and say you know this function is best done for all these reasons best done alone or separately and we start all over again yeah, I mean, I think to be to be fair to, I mean, I think and that's something that's been part of active discussion. The UK in particular has pushed very hard on this idea, and they're they're very seriously regulated. They are very seriously talking about doing this. And one thing to recognise is, in some sense, it, it would be it would be hard for the UK to do it alone. You know, it, it, you know, these firms have they they are in a complicated way global firms in part because the clients, the firms that they audit, are global firms. You know, you can't audit. You know HSBC, the UK without auditing HSBC US, HSBC in Asia, and so forth. So there's a there's a global aspect to this business. This is something that they're very seriously talking about. But it's actually an interesting thing. It's sort of hard to identify. Definitely, there was sort of a more clear cut idea of these businesses being accounting firms at at some point in the past. But even if you go back to the 19th century, sort of the the heyday of you know when uh, people were counting bricks and when people were sort of standing up to the railways for dodgy accounts and so forth. Even then they had very they had fairly diversified business, maybe not quite as broad as they are now, and maybe not with sort of um the advisory business dominating. Um but there's sort of it's sort of an interesting history. It's sort of hard to point to a um a point in history where they were sort of pure audit businesses, but that's something that's definitely uh, an idea to be taken seriously and one that is being taken seriously in some parts of the world. Yes. A quick, couple of quick comments on that issue of splitting out audit. Um, first of all, in terms of the big four, they really strongly resist that idea of separating out audit for a few reasons. One is because audit sprinkles useful magic dust over the other services that they do. Um, it adds an aura of integrity, etc. Um, they've always argued that by having the service lines combined, it makes for more effective audits and more effective advisory. May not be true. <laughs> it um, makes for bigger but, bills. But so also, there's all that. sorts of practical. Yeah, there's all sorts of practical issues as well around services at the borderline, like internal audit. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's those kinds of issues at the big four level. But but at, at a at a more meta level, the um, auditing is the one that's probably most vulnerable to digital disruption. So what is an audit? Audit is about getting assurance about integrity 
uh, of, around transactions and around accounts and around the underlying business. There are lots of new ways to get integrity uh, and to get assurance about that. So, for example, blockchain and digital analytics and big data type techniques and cognitive AI, you can actually automate and systematize and expand drastically using IT resources rather than traditional human audit teams, the kind of assurance you get from these things. So, um, yes, it, it's it's definitely a viable option to think about splitting it out, um, but that's the thing that's probably going to be really fundamentally disrupted very soon. Yeah, I, I, it's purely an aside, but uh, blockchain's a new thing, but it's just a f- new word for a distributed ledger system, which is a, is an older system, and then it gets conflated with uh, cryptocurrencies. But uh, I, I uh, appreciate the the potential value in business of a distributed ledger, but let's let's not confuse it. This is just technology onto a very old concept of a distributed ledger. Uh, it may make it a lot better, but it's not fundamentally new. Said, so said the historian. So let, let's get, but let's get back again to where you'd like to see things develop uh, over the next, you know, or where you feel they're going to have to develop, uh, given the this weak structure. I think it's a weak structure, but uh, full of conflicts uh, and risk of disintermediation. Where where is the the future heading? We haven't talked much about the actual business structure of these entities. It's worth just touching on that quickly because they are these international separate. Uh, national partnership structures. So each one is a country-based partnership. Uh, they're not a corporate entity. They're not listed. Uh, they, they they struggle to raise external capital for all sorts of reasons, including regulatory ones. Um, so they have this uh, very, very light networky sort of structure internationally. They have what they call head offices and and um, and uh, global, global um, centres, which are actually owned by the national practices as subsidiaries. So it's very hard to get continuity and consistency of international uh, standards of operations, and it's very hard to make collective decisions internationally. So the, the structure that was set up partly as a protective thing to stop scandals from jumping national boundaries has actually failed in stopping scandals from jumping national boundaries, and it's a number one constraint in how they can actually respond to disruption. So there's probably a, a, a need to move to a different kind of structure, possibly an international corporate structure, but getting from where we are now to that is is incredibly difficult. Yeah. I mean, the technology is an interesting angle because if you think about technology firms, you think of either small startups where you know people join a very dynamic organization that can be very fluid and what respond very quickly and be a very exciting place to work at one end of the scale. And then you have at the other, other end of the scale, you're going to have your Microsofts and your, your Googles and your Facebooks, very, very large organizations, very, you know, with huge balance sheets, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of cash sitting on the balance sheet, essentially. And then basically they can mop up technologies. Um, I mean, they can obviously develop them in-house. Um, and so it'll be interesting to sort of see how these these fairly light capital organizations with a fairly distributed structure, how how the big four are going to sort of cope in that world. Because then they're not necessarily the first place you want to go and work out if you're sort of a computer science graduate coming out with a PhD from Carnegie Mellon necessarily. Um, so, but you don't, they don't have the same resources in terms of technology that the Facebook and Google have. And so one wonders, you know, how they're going to sort of cope with those sort of being sort of attacked at each end of this from both ends of the spectrum there into as, as the business becomes more and more sort of technology driven. And I think that's a very real possibility going forward in the future. 
that circles back nicely to the question of brand too, because a lot of the company's histories is embodied in their brands and the brands are arguably their most valuable assets and one of the few very, very valuable things that they own. When they take over businesses, they, these um, four have been on a bit of a buying spree over the last couple of decades. When they acquire other um, advisory businesses and professional services businesses, they often do something very interesting, which is essentially just extend the reach of the brand. So they allow the other entity to become like a division and and to use PwC or or KPMG or whatever. Um, So it's not a very capital intensive acquisition process. And and the sort of the perimeter just sort of extends out a little bit more, which is quite quite unusual. Um, But one of the things that's in play is, well, if we're going to split these things up, or if, if we're going to you know, back out of auditing, what does it look like? So is it KPMG auditing and KPMG advisory and their separate firms? Or does the advisory firm get KPMG and then the audit firm get something else? Those sorts of branding issues which are on the horizon are going to be very fraught as well. You know, I'm not I'm not uh, you, you, what's going in the the industry and the challenges is not. Uh, isolated. Uh, I viewed as I read your book, and you didn't really use this term that much, but I, I run into it all the time in my uh, a parallel industry, which is just this is an enormous agency cost. You know, an investor can't doesn't run the business, so they hire the board of directors. The board of directors hires the executives. In theory, there's accountability, but in practice, there isn't much. And uh, by the same measure, if you put your money into another company, there's an agency cost associated with knowing whether the, the books are, are good. And we, uh, a little bit like your expectations gap, which I encounter in my own job in the investment profession, there's an expectations gap everywhere. People just don't, I think, appreciate the fact that there was never going to be a perfect system. It's constantly changing. And there, unless you wish to do your own brain surgery, your own dentistry, and your own large-scale global manufacturing, uh, in which case, in each of those cases, you can you don't have an agency cost, uh, you are going to run into intermediaries, and you, there's going to be a friction at every level of intermediary, and there there may be a perfect solution, but it's not really likely. And in fact, you're going to be stuck with agency costs across the board. Is it possible that we just have to acknowledge for accounting that there is no perfect perfect assurance mechanism unless we go back to you know small-scale business where everyone is the owner, operator, auditor, and 100% business owner of, of their affairs? Yeah, I think there's a real – I mean, the agency problems are perhaps more severe with auditing because, I mean, in some ways, the auditor is – I think in sort of an idealized world, the auditor would be appointed by the investors. So the investors, the shareholders would say, listen, we – you know, the, the management's telling us one thing. We want you to go in there and check uh, what's happening, make sure that the financial statements reflect what's actually going on in the business. I think pre-Enron, pre-Subbanes-Oxley, um, there was a sense that uh, the auditors felt that their client was management, which is, you know, uh, a complete, completely topsy-turvy world relative to what you'd sort of expect it to be. I think since since that time with the PCAOB and with similar sort of uh, bodies being established elsewhere in the world, that's the Public Accounting uh, Oversight uh, Board, Public Company Oversight, uh, it's peekaboo is the is the short term. Um, so that was, but that's basically an entity that was set up to basically be an independent government entity to sort of oversee uh, the auditing process, uh, and it's something that I think was a very important step 
And I think that might be something that might be extended in the future. Uh, in some sense, I think it's the the, the process we ha- we have. So nowadays we have more of a process where the audit committee appoints. So that's part of the board. The audit committee appoints the auditors and the audit, external auditors report to the audit committee. Um, but one has to recognize limitations of, you know, an audit committee is typically three part-time directors. Um, you know, they've got, only got so much resources at their disposal. Um, and, you know, they're, they're going to be happy just hiring any one of the big four, one, one would think, because their reputations are sort of interchangeable at some level. And so there's a real gap in terms of how do, how do we create the incentives so that someone is saying, listen, I want these, they want these, I want you, big four firm, to do an excellent job auditing. I want you to, to spend the big bucks to bring in the best people. And I think sort of getting that established through a market process is something we haven't worked out. Um, so one another real possibility is that sort of the the the, the reach in some sense of uh, bodies like the PCAOB that that actually be extended, and you'll sort of almost get a quasi utility like function. So sort of it's almost like the 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 government. You know, we have the same thing with health regulations. You know, we have health health inspectors going around restaurants, uh, and that's a real possibility, I think, as well for the future. Is that just we'll have increasing government involvement in terms of uh, the regulators basically saying, "Listen, we're going to tell you how to do an audit. We're going to be the ones checking you've done a good job." And that's definitely a process we've seen over the last 20, 20 years around the world um, but that's something that could actually continue into the future as one way to address this sort of agency problem we haven't quite worked out how to how to address and on the debt side in the United States you know the the companies issuing the debt pay the pay the rating agencies so you know that creates all sorts of issues and there have been efforts I uh, occasionally anecdotally to come up with a dis- different system where the debt is uh, rated by potential buyers but it, I, I don't know that it's taken off um, I would say that your system of basically government audits may have a greater chance of succeeding outside the United States the the inclination in the United States despite the fact that we have more than our fair share of scandals to having a, a larger government role in business is is perhaps less than it might be in England or, or Australia, but uh, I, you know, it's a possibility. But I suspect, uh, particularly in current time, it's it's unlikely. Well, there's an interesting dimension there. Just quickly on the international front, um, obviously China is a big part of this story, and uh, there the boundaries between government and business are very different. And part of their sort of antitrust approach with the the major accounting firms is to actually sponsor and help create competitive firms, competing firms based on local accounting practices that will then take the, the, the competition to the, the big four. And that's having some success. Duly noted, duly noted. Maybe maybe there's a government-inspired competition, but we'll see. But something something has to give because, uh, uh, you know, the, the, again, it, it's a, just a monstrous uh, agency cost uh, at this point in, in time. We're, we're kind of coming towards the conclusion. I wanted to uh, uh, give you a chance to kind of any uh, particular comments you want to make sure there are the future readers uh, uh, and, and uh, will want to look out for in the book or, or particular things that you want to mention before we wrap up? We've had really good engagement with the big four and the and the profession about this book. Um, uh, lots of people have contacted us and said, you know, it, it, it's a really interesting take. And we've had um, some of the firms have even been open to having strategic conversations with us about the future. So these are the, the issues that the, the businesses are grappling with right now. Uh, and uh, it's, it's an interesting time to be writing in this area. Um, one thing we didn't touch on too much in the conversation is the way we've approached uh, the, the future of the big four in the book 
is to talk about the big four, but also to talk about other examples from history, including the Medici Bank, uh, which has this really interesting sort of historical um, echo of how it, it moved away from its core purpose and had this sort of confluence of existential challenges all happening at once. And how that played out is, is a really interesting sort of mirror to, to what's happening in the big four at the moment. So just warn the reader, when you pick up the book, you might be reading about the, the Medici Bank as well as the big four. It's no warning. It's an interesting parallel story that, that makes a great deal of, of sense and, again, highlights the fact that these institutions have histories, can rise and fall, and the business practices change in, in the Medici's and uh, uh, in, in, in business in, in general. The book is The Big Four uh, by Professors Ian Gao and Stuart Kells. The Big Four, The Curious Past and Perilous Future of the Global Accounting Monopoly came out in 2018. It is available through all standard uh, book distribution channels. Uh, professors, thank you for joining me. Last question often is, and I'm not certain whether it's relevant or not, but uh, your uh, current projects, it sounds like naturally would be a continuation of this or an implementation of this, but are you working on any other projects that potential readers should uh, should keep in mind. Yes, we've got a whole um, a series of, of, of books and, and, and research in the pipeline. Uh, Ian and I are both working on specific issues around accounting, including in that intersection between accounting and linguistics and, and economics and the humanities. Um, also, um, a book uh, about Adam Smith uh, in, in the offing and uh, a couple of other things you'll hear about very soon. Very good. Well, we will look forward to that. Again, gentlemen, thank you uh, for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you, Daniel. Really good. Thank you.